Well, thank you, Daniel, and uh, thank you for all you do here as well, and welcome, everybody. Um, man, that last song kind of summarizes uh, a lot of what we're going to look at in the, in the Bible this morning. Um, we are in the book of Philippians, as Daniel mentioned, and uh, what an amazing book it's been so far, huh? Um, I mean, so much good stuff in here coming from the Holy Spirit through Paul while he was sitting in a Roman jail, chained to a Roman guard. You know, um, prisons and jails back in those days were nothing like what we have today. Um, there were no high security things, electronic gates and bars, uh, generally no food, certainly no television. Uh, you were put in a dungeon somewhere and chained to a Roman guard, and they'd just keep changing the guard so you, you couldn't go anywhere because you're chained to this, this big heavy guy with all of his armor on. And food, you had to have friends and family bring you food, and if you wanted something to read, you know, they'd have to bring it to you. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul's situation was he was not only in that dungeon chained to a Roman guard, but he was facing a possible death sentence for his work in sharing the gospel. Now, as a Roman citizen, yes, he would have been spared crucifixion, but he would still be facing death by having his head chopped off with an axe. So right off the bat, this book shows us in a big picture sense that just because you follow the Lord, and even do great works for him, as Paul did, it does not mean that your life is going to be all filled with rainbows and marshmallows and unicorns. Now, even though Paul's circumstances are not good at all, in fact, they were pretty lousy, believe it or not, if you haven't noticed already, the overwhelming theme of this book is joy. In fact, he mentions joy at least eight times in the book, if you count it up, along with two other related concepts to joy, which are peace and and contentment, and we'll see more of that in the next couple chapters. So it's pretty amazing. Here is Paul writing from this Roman jail to people on the outside, not in the circumstances he is in, telling them how to have joy. So we have to ask ourselves, was Paul delusional? Was he, was he crazy? Or is he really on to something here that we need to listen to and pay attention to? In our section today, which is chapter 3, verses 1 through 16, we're going to zero in on where and how Paul found this joy while at the same time he was sitting there in this Roman jail facing death. And we're going to see a couple of things that he tells us we should be doing in order to find that joy no matter what we are going through or have been through in the past or are facing in the future. And he's going to show us a couple of things that we need to avoid from doing if we want to have that joy. So let me pray, and then we'll begin and go through this verse by verse. Father God, open our eyes to see these truths in your word this morning, Lord. We know we can't understand uh, your holy word without the work of your Holy Spirit. So Lord, pour down your Holy Spirit on us right now, on me and everyone else here, Lord, that our ears might be open, we might have ears to hear, Lord, that you would be lifted up, you would be exalted, and Lord, we would be comforted in the process. And we love you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's look at verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So in this verse, Paul tells us where he found this joy. And he says there that it was in Jesus. For he says there, rejoice in the Lord. You see, our problem often is that we are looking for joy in all the wrong places. 
like in material possessions, vacations, good times, good health, good education, good jobs, good relationships, and everything pretty much just going our way. And even when we ask God to bless us, we often ask him to bless us with those types of things. And even when we thank him, it's usually for those kinds of things that we thank him. Now, don't get me wrong, there's no question that God has blessed us greatly in these areas and that we should thank him for them. But here's the problem. We live in one of the nicest, safest, healthiest places on earth with more material wealth and possessions than the world has ever known. And yet many of us, frankly, are miserable or at least not experiencing anywhere near the level of joy that Paul had. There was a recent Wall Street Journal study that just came out last month that said that only 12% of Americans would actually describe themselves as happy. And that was the lowest percentage in the 50 years that they've been doing that study. You know, that's pretty sad, especially for a nation like ours, founded on the principles of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. According to the latest statistics from a group called the Anxiety and Depression Association of America, one in five adults in America suffer from anxiety, and nearly 32% of adolescents suffer from it as well. The study also said that half the people that suffer from anxiety also suffer from, from depression. And you can find many other organizations and researchers who track this sort of thing, who report the same statistics. Other studies point to the fact that our rates of anxiety and depression in America are much higher now than they were 50 or 100 years ago. So clearly, joy is not found in having lots of stuff or in living in a nice, beautiful, and relatively safe place full of material blessings. For we have all of that as a culture, and yet we're losing our joy. So we need to stop looking for joy in those other places and instead learn to find it in the Lord. Now, some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, sure, of course, Paul could do that. He was some kind of super saint, but that's not me. But look at what Paul says in the rest of verse 1. He says there that it's no trouble for me to write these things to you because it is safe for you. You see, he's writing these things to everyone in the church at Philippi, who, by the way, were just ordinary Christians like you and I. And he says it was safe or good for them to hear these things. In the Greek, that word that's translated there as safe meant to put something on a safe or secure footing. So clearly, Paul wouldn't be telling them these things if it wasn't possible for them to have this same kind of joy. So what was it about Paul that we need to learn how to do which enabled him to have this joy in the midst of such dire, dire circumstances. Well, as we learned a few weeks ago in Philippians 1.21, life for Paul, both now in, the, and in this life and in the life to come, was all about Jesus. For remember what he said there? For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So we might say that Paul lived a Christ-centered life and that this is absolutely foundational to being a joyful person. You see, a lot of us may have Jesus in our lives, but we have not made him the center of our lives. Jesus didn't come to be just a part of our lives. He came to be the center 
of our lives. You can think of it like a wagon wheel. You know those things that got all the Conestoga wagons across the plains to settle the West. They had, a, they had an iron hub at the center, and out of that came these wooden spokes that would support this wheel, and it would go through ruts and ditches and uphills and downhills and through sand and mud, and it would always hold up that wagon. Why? Because everything was resting on that iron hub. And see, Jesus came to be that iron hub, that center of our life. He didn't come to be one of the spokes. And what we do a lot of times is we make something else that iron center, that hub, and make Jesus just one of the spokes. But no, he needs to be the center. And then out of that can come things like family and work and career and education, even, even vacations and recreation. But they all need to be rooted on Jesus because he's the only thing that can bear the weight that comes pressing down as we go through the ruts and the valleys of life. And part of the reason why we don't get this right may be from the way that we think of the gospel in perhaps too shallow of a way. Because oftentimes we look at it as all about just inviting Jesus into our lives, when if you look at it carefully, it's really all about giving our lives to him, laying our lives down as we just sung at the foot of the cross. You know, you've probably seen those bumper stickers, it's a big pet peeve for me, that say, God is my co-pilot. Well, I've got news for you. That is completely wrong. Okay, completely wrong. Jesus came to be our pilot. He didn't come to share control of our lives with us. There is room in us for only one throne and one person on that throne. And it's either going to be Jesus alone or Jesus not at all because there is no room for both Jesus and us on that throne. And so our worries, our anxieties, and our lack of joy, even as Christians, often come when we try to climb back on that throne with Jesus. You see, Paul had no problem making Jesus the center of his life and in allowing him alone to be in control of his life because he relished in the fact that Jesus Christ had saved him and had rescued his soul from eternal death. In other words, Paul had the joy of his salvation. And that is a joy that can never be taken away from us, and that is not dependent upon our circumstances. In fact, it is a joy that rises above and lives above all of our circumstances. You see, when God saved us through sending Jesus from heaven to earth to a cross, to take on our sin and to die in our place for the sin that we deserve to die for. And not only that, but then resurrected Jesus to new life as the firstborn from the dead to give us new life and the hope of our own resurrection. And when God then, by the power of his Holy Spirit that he poured down on us, caused us to trust in this Jesus, to save us and to be our Lord and Savior, God in doing that solved the biggest problem we ever had or ever will have And that is that we were sinners headed straight to the pit of hell. And if he did that, then of course we can trust him to solve any other problem that we might face in this world. Because whatever those problems are, they are much smaller in comparison to that problem of saving us. And Paul knew and lived by that truth. Look at how he expressed it in Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him 
graciously give us all things. So this joy that Paul had was not really affected by his circumstances because he knew that God was in control of his circumstances and he knew that God was good and that God was for him and that God would graciously give him whatever he need to endure and yes, even to thrive in whatever circumstances he found himself in. Now in the next verse, verse 2, Paul is going to warn us about something that can take away or rob us of that joy. So let's read it. He says, look out for the dogs. And he doesn't doesn't mean the things that run run around our houses. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What Paul is speaking there of is a certain group of people in the early churches called the party of the circumcision, who basically believed that you had to believe in Jesus and still keep the law in order to be saved. And they were basically what we would call legalists. And so Paul is speaking there of those who practice and teach legalism, which is this belief that somehow in our own strength, referred to there as the flesh, we can somehow improve ourselves, sanctify ourselves, make ourselves more righteous in God's sight, stay out of sin, and become more Christ-like. Elsewhere, the Bible makes it clear that on our own, we can do none of that. And that while we have our role to fulfill, which Paul described a couple weeks ago when we, when we had Philippians 2.12, our role is being to seek to obey. It is still, as he said in the next verse, Philippians 2.13, God at work within us who causes the change and brings about the Christ-likeness in us. So legalism, or trying to produce greater obedience or Christ-likeness in yourself, will make you miserable because it will not work and you will get frustrated and worn out trying. And so if rejoicing in the Lord and in our salvation is one of the things that we need to do in order to have this same joy that Paul had, then allowing legalism, he's telling us in verse 2, to creep into our lives and into our thinking is one of the things that we need to avoid in order to have that joy. Now, instead of pursuing righteousness by our own strength, verse 3 begins to tell us, how we are to pursue it, which is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Technically, it says there we are to worship by the Spirit, but the Bible also teaches in Romans 12.1 that obedience to God, described there as living our entire lives as a sacrifice to him, is part of our worship of him. And notice there in verse 3 what Paul says about the power of his own flesh. He says that he puts no confidence in it. In other words, he is not relying on it and he is not trusting in it to do anything for him with respect to anything about his walk with the Lord. You see, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of the flesh. So if we're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can expect to see joy in our lives. But if we're walking by the flesh, we will have no real hope of ever seeing much joy. I know that Daniel touched on this last week, but it is very important to remember, so I want to come back to this. It's important to remember both for ourselves as believers in the church and also for how we view unbelievers outside the church that no one can obey or please God in their flesh. 
Look at Romans 8, 7, and 8, which support what Daniel said last week. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. And catch this, indeed it cannot. It cannot submit to God's law. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That is why, brothers and sisters, it is pointless for us as Christians to expect an unbeliever who by definition is still in the flesh to submit to or obey God because they lack the ability to do so. And even if they could do it, it still wouldn't be pleasing to God. It is only by the Spirit that anyone has the power to obey God or that their obedience becomes pleasing to God. And it's only by accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior that a person gets the Holy Spirit living inside of them to enable them and to empower them to obey him. So as we as the church throughout our week interact with the unsaved people around us, it does no good to call the homosexual to give up their homosexuality. It does no good to call the porn addict to stop using porn or the drug user to give up drugs or to call any other type of immoral person to change and live a more godly life without first giving them the gospel. Because without Jesus and the Spirit, the scripture we just looked at says that they lack the ability to live any differently or to please God. And moreover, even if, they could, if we could get them to somehow change their behavior, but they don't have Jesus, well, we might have made our world a little bit nicer for ourselves, but they would still be going into eternal damnation so we would not have accomplished anything of eternal good. So we preach the gospel as a church to the unsaved world, and we preach obedience by the Spirit to ourselves as believers. And the call to obedience for us as believers is not to try to work ourselves up into it by our own strength into some kind of obedience by sucking it up and gritting our teeth, but rather to obey by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is something that the Bible refers to, that supernatural power, as resurrection power. In other words, the very same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, from the grave, dwells within us. And so you see, yeah, amen. So you see that when obedience to God comes from the power of the Holy Spirit in us, you know what else happens? Then God gets the glory for it. And the Christian life is supposed to be all about God's glory, not our glory. But if we could somehow obey on our own, then who gets the glory? We do. And that's got it all backwards. So how do we obey God by the power of the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer is found again if we go back to Philippians 2, 12, and 13. So let's actually read that again. I know you studied it last week, but it's so core to why Paul has all this joy here. It says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You see, verse 12 tells us our part, which is to seek to obey, really to have a heart that wants to obey. It's, it's having that heart that begins to look at God's commands in a, in a brand new light, where all the thou shalt nots of the commandments are no longer looked at as the thou shalt nots, and they now become the I don't want tos. 
And all the thou shalls of the Ten Commandments no longer look like some, some burden you have to carry and something that you have to do, but they become things that you want to do. And then verse 13 tells us that as we do that, as our hearts become like that, it actually becomes God's power in us that is causing the obedience. You see, what is going on is, is this. When God sees in us a heart that truly wants to obey him, then he gives us the power to obey. So it is our desire to obey that releases the power of God in us to obey. God can work against our wills, certainly. He is God. He can do whatever he wants, but he generally does not work against our will. Remember what Jesus said to the blind man in John 5, 6, the one who had been sitting next to the pool of Bethesda for 38 years before Jesus healed him? Jesus said this, Do you wish to be well? You see, in the same way, God is waiting for our hearts to want to obey him before he is going to give us the power to obey him. Now, if anybody could have been expected to trust in their own flesh as opposed to the spirit within them, it would have been Paul. For he was, in a fleshly sense, a very highly accomplished individual. Let's look at what he tells us about himself in verses 4 through 6 of chapter 3. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, Let's think about what some of that means. Because in our culture, here on the Hill, what Paul had just told us would be like saying, I went to Chadwick. I was an honor student. I got fives on all my AP tests, and I went to UCLA, Berkeley, or some Ivy League school, and I just landed a job with some Wall Street firm. Because all of those things listed there are just like that in Paul's culture. They're sort of high watermarks for a devout Jew of Paul's day. The eighth day after birth was precisely the time that the law called for a Jewish boy to be circumcised. And that was when Paul was circumcised. He was born as a person of Israel, and he was Jewish from birth. He wasn't a Gentile convert or proselyte who was grafted in. He had met the strict standards of being a Pharisee, meaning that externally at least, he had kept the strict letter of the law. On top of that, Paul tells us there that he had zeal for his faith, so much so that it led him to persecute those whom he thought were blasphemers, namely Christians. And under the legalistic and works-based religious system of Paul's day that supposedly would produce salvation, Paul had done everything that he was required to do in order to be deemed righteous. But let's read verses 7 through 11 to see how little that mattered to him now in comparison with the wonder of knowing Jesus and of trusting in him and his righteousness for his salvation. So let's look at 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish 
in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that's what we just talked about, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. See, in verses 7 and 8, Paul says that he counted all of those fleshly works as loss, or in other words, as something he would gladly give up for the sake of knowing Jesus and for the sake of knowing the power of the resurrection. The Greek word translated there as know is this little word gnosis, and it's, it did not refer to an intellectual, an academic, or a book smart type of knowledge, but rather it referred to a personal, relational, experiential, and yes, even an intimate type of knowledge. In John 17, 3, Jesus uses the exact same word to explain what eternal life is. And he tells us there that it is knowing God, gnosis God, through Jesus in an intimate, personal, experiential, and relational way. Gnosis was the same word that was actually used in that culture to describe how a husband would get to know his wife on their wedding night. And that is a very deep and close type of knowledge. You see, Paul realized the surpassing greatness of getting to know Jesus in that way, and it produced a joy in him that could never be found in anything that the world had to offer. So look at near the end of verse 8 at how he refers to everything he had before Jesus. Our ESV translation calls it rubbish. The actual Greek word is the word skubalon. It's actually one of the nastiest words in Scripture, because it actually refers to something much worse than rubbish, and that is cow dung. That's what Paul is saying. He viewed everything he could accomplish in his flesh, everything this world could offer him, nothing but a cow patty. That's basically how he looked at it. Now, in verse 10, Paul tells us something that, like his incredible joy, ought to make us pause and ask again, is he crazy, or is he really on to something that we should pay attention to? For here he tells us in verse 10 that knowing Jesus is such a good thing that he would be willing even to share in the sufferings of Jesus in order to get to know Jesus better. You see, when we go through the kinds of suffering that Jesus went through, we get to identify with him in ways that we never thought would be possible. And we get to grow in a much deeper understanding of what he went through in order to save us. For example, when we are treated unjustly or unfairly or feel like all of our rights are being denied, it gives us a glimpse of how Jesus, even more so, was treated unjustly and unfairly and had all of his rights denied in both the Jewish and Roman systems on his way to die for us on a cross. Or when we feel like everything we say is being misunderstood and misconstrued, and that all of our good is being spoken of as evil by others, it gives us a glimpse of how Jesus, even more so, went through the same thing on his way to the cross for us. When we feel like we've been rejected by those whom we love, it gives us a glimpse of how Jesus must have felt, even more so, 
when we rejected him. When we feel abandoned by our friends, it gives us a glimpse of what Jesus went through when most of his followers left him all alone to die on that cross all alone for us. So suffering as Christ suffered, where it isn't right and where it makes no sense, helps us grow in our appreciation of all that he went through for us. And now we get to the most important concept of all for us to have and maintain this incredible joy in the Lord that Paul's been talking about. And it's found in verses 12 through 14. So let me read that to us now. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, these verses tell us that life is not meant to be lived looking backwards at what was or what might have been or what could have been. Instead, it is meant to be lived looking forward to what God has in store for us in the future, which in this life is greater Christ-likeness, that process of being perfected that Paul's talking about, and greater intimacy with him, greater gnosis with him that he's talked about. But ultimately, in the next life, it is to be with him forever in heaven. In other words, we are to live life with a forward focus, not a backwards focus. And Paul is so serious and so adamant about this that he even says there in verse 13 that this is the one thing that he does. It is like he is saying, look, if you can remember only one thing I've told you so far, remember this, don't look backwards, look forward. You know, a lot of, you can think of it like driving a car, right? Our cars come with these giant windshields in the front because we're supposed to spend about 97 or 98% of our time looking through the windshield going forward. Sure, they give us two or three rearview mirrors that we need to look at every now and then, maybe to make a lane change or something like that. But if you tried driving that car through the rearview mirrors, what would happen? You'd crash and burn. And the same thing's true with us in our Christian lives. We often try driving our Christian life through the rearview mirrors of everything that happened in the past. And we wonder why we're crashing and burning. Now, if anyone could have been expected to be all caught up with wallowing in his past, it would have been Paul. For as he just said, he had persecuted the church. He had rounded up, persecuted, and killed Christians. But he says, no. I forget about that. And look, we have all done bad things, and we have all had bad things happen to us. I mean, welcome to the fallen world that we're living in. But we can't change that, and nothing good comes from dwelling on them. There is no joy, and there is no hope that comes from focusing on the failures of our past. In fact, it will rob us of our joy. As Christians, we need to also remember that we are not prisoners of our past. Look at what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, which was also written by Paul on the same subject. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, brothers and sisters, you and I are not stuck 
with being who we were in the past or even with who we might be now. Sure, if we were to hand out personality tests this morning and take them, we'd all come back. Some of us are this, some of us are that, others are something else, and all kinds of different personalities right here in this little sliver of time now. But first of all, that's not how God looks at us. He doesn't look at us in a snapshot. He looks at us like a video. He sees the whole thing. But secondly, we are all in the process of being conformed to a divine personality type. That's what the scriptures tell us. And that divine personality type is of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. That's this process of becoming more Christ-like. So there is hope. We are not stuck where we are today. And so our section of Philippians closes in verses 15 and 16 with Paul then saying this. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything if in, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So basically, Paul is telling us there that this way of living that he's been talking about, this forward-focused life, is the mature way to live, actually. And he says that if anyone doesn't understand that yet, that's okay. God will eventually open your eyes so that you can see where you may need to start thinking the same way that he has explained here. Now, as we learn to live a more forward-focused life, trials and difficulties are still going to come, and they certainly did for Paul. He was ultimately killed for his faith shortly after he wrote the book of 2 Timothy. But Paul kept his focus on Jesus from the beginning to the end of his Christian life here on this earth. Go read the book of 2 Timothy, and you will see that it's all about Jesus and the gospel and on passing it on to the next generation. And when we keep our focus on Jesus, no matter what we've been through in the past or what kind of circumstances we may find ourselves in in the present, we can get through anything. There's a couple of beautiful word pictures in Scripture that illustrate this. One is found back in Numbers 21. The people of Israel are still and they're wandering through the desert and they do what they often do, and that is they start grumbling against God and Moses. And this time they're grumbling like, man, we don't like the food out here. We're tired of manna. We really want the garlic and the leeks and all this nice stuff we had back in Egypt. And by the way, Moses, we're starving out here. What are you doing? You're, you're crazy. And God doesn't like that. So God sends fiery snakes into their midst as sort of a judgment to wake them up and bring them to their senses. And these fiery snakes are venomous, and if they bite you, you die. And so the people cry out to God for mercy, and Moses is led to go pray to God to ask for mercy for the people. And God says, Moses, here's what you do. I'm not going to take away the snakes, but I want you to make a snake out of bronze, lift it up on a pole at the front of the camp. And if anyone is bitten by a snake and they look to this uplifted bronze serpent, then though they are bitten, they will not die. And Jesus later uses that uplifted bronze serpent as a picture of himself in the New Testament. But if you were bitten by a snake and you didn't look at God's uplifted provision, you died. So God didn't take away the snakes, but he gave, you a way, gave them a way through it by looking at him, looking at his provision in that situation. The other one's in the New Testament, and it's Peter walking on water. You know, as long as he's keeping his eyes focused on Jesus, he can do the impossible. He can do the supernatural. He's walking on water. But the minute, if you look at that account, he takes his eyes off of Jesus and was probably looking at the wind and the waves and going, gee, what am I doing up here? Remember what happens? 
Down he goes. Down he goes. It's the same lesson. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus, and you'll be able to walk through anything that life throws you. So, when we encounter the fiery snakes, or the wind, and the waves of this world, and they will come, we have a choice. We can either focus on them, or on ourselves and our situation, or we can focus on Jesus. And it's a battle, because our flesh usually wants to have a pity party and invite everyone else to it that we can. I mean, sometimes it does seem kind of fun, doesn't it, for a while, until we realize that it's a trap that imprisons us and that the people we invite usually don't want to stay very long because it's not very fun. Or the empty philosophies of the world come along and they usually tell us to dredge up and dig into all of our past hurts and failures, which then tends to make the current situation seem even worse. Or Satan comes along, and he would love for us to wallow around in our guilt and our shame and our self-focus, because in that, we are pretty useless in advancing God's kingdom. So when these types of thoughts come into our minds, we need to say, no, no, I'm not going there. And we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us in our weakness. The writer of Hebrews described the Christian life as like running a race. And he said this, this is our closing verse. He said this in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And catch this, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Any good track coach will tell you that in order to do well in a race, you have to keep your eye on the finish line. You can't be looking back. You can't be looking at everybody else around you. You can't be thinking about the last race that maybe you lost because it's going to hinder you in running the race. And so as we run the race of the Christian life, we need to keep looking forward to Jesus, for he is there. He's at the finish line, waiting, waiting to welcome us home. Ultimately, that finish line is going to be with him in heaven. That is the prize, the goal of this upward call of God in Christ Jesus that Paul's referring to in Philippians 3.14. But before we get there, and while we're still running the race, The goal, as Paul just taught us, is to experience Jesus, to gnosis him more in our lives, to have a greater intimacy with him and a greater knowledge of him. You know, one of our daughters and um, her husband uh, in the last few years got into running marathons. And so my wife Janet and I have gone to a couple of them now. And we've been there uh, on the sidelines partway through the race to encourage them on. and, And you see other friends and loved ones doing the same thing for the other runners. And that is what Jesus is doing for us all the time right now in this race of the Christian life. But then the best part, absolutely the best part, very moving, is to go to the finish line. And no, we don't run there. We drive over there. And <laughs> it, is, it is so moving to join all the friends and the family of the runners there just waiting for their loved ones to cross the finish line. And they run out to them, and they hug them, and they welcome them, and they give them cold water and invite them to rest. 
And that is where Jesus is waiting for us at the finish line, at the right hand of the Father, waiting for us to get there to heaven, to hug us, to welcome us, and to give us rest. So to summarize what we've seen here, it is this. Joy is found in the Lord and in getting to know him, even if it is through sufferings. Things like legalism, living by the power of our flesh, and focusing on the past, those will all rob us of that joy. And living life with a forward focus, keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, will help us maintain and even increase that joy. So I'm going to give an invitation now, because in a crowd like this, there's probably some people here that don't gnosis Jesus yet. You don't know Jesus yet. Maybe you know church, but you don't know Jesus yet. And this would be a great opportunity to come to know him, to come to know this one who can give you that joy. And you can do this bowing your head in prayer. You can be sitting there thinking it in your your heart and mind right now. But just acknowledge to God that that you're a sinner. You've fallen short of his his standard and, and, and you don't want to be that way anymore. And you trust him to forgive you. You trust that Jesus died to pay for those sins of yours on the cross. And you want him to give you a new life. You don't want to just have him come into your life. You want to give your life to him and begin a walk with him. And the Bible says that if you've trusted in his death and resurrection in that way to save you, you are now a child of God. And you can now begin to experience this joy. So if there's anybody here that has made that choice or wants to make that choice today, just just slip up your hand and don't feel embarrassed. Everyone else here has done the same thing at one point in their lives. Some of you probably had to walk aisles. We're not even asking that. But if you want to receive this Jesus, just raise your hand. It's an amazing thing. Amazing thing to know him. Bless you. And, and certainly for everyone else here who are believers, look, life is tough. And so lots of us here may be struggling with a lack of joy. We may be struggling with issues in our past. We may be having difficulty staying focused on Jesus because our flesh and the world and Satan come along and they're trying to tug us in a different direction. And so we're going to have a bunch of people up here to pray for you afterwards. Pastor Daniel will be here, Pastor Ben Kai, our prayer team, I'll be up here. We'd really encourage you to make this a healing moment. Come forward, ask a brother or sister to pray with you, to relieve you of those burdens, and to help get your focus back on Jesus, because he's where the joy is found. Amen? Let me pray. Father God, uh, thank you for this amazing section of Scripture. Lord, thank you for the lessons you teach us through your word and through the people that have followed you before us. And Lord Jesus, um, we look not only to Paul, but mostly to you, Lord. For as we just read, for the joy set before you, you endured something as awful as the cross, but you did it for that joy of not only saving us, but of going home to be with the Father, to be there in that place called heaven where you had existed before you entered time and space. And Lord, we thank you that you're there on the sidelines now in our life, encouraging us along, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you're there at the finish line, waiting for us, Lord. You can't wait to see us there and to welcome us home. May those things, Lord, help us to live a more forward-focused life and to live a life with this joy that Paul's been talking about. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.